Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Okay, well, we have been um, in the book of Philippians in our Sunday morning time, and we are in chapter 2 today, beginning chapter 2. and. There's so much to be said about verses 1 through 4, we're not going to go further than that. But I just want to remind you that uh, Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul from the prison cell, and yet has it, it has an overall tone of great joy and victory in it. And <clears throat> he is just rejoicing that the gospel is proclaimed as it is, even while he's in chains. And um, he, he, he is proclaiming it, and he, sees other, he knows other people are proclaiming proclaiming it. There's a constant theme in the book of Philippians of joy. There's a constant theme about how we should think, and probably summed up best in chapter 2-5 about let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Um, So a great emphasis on our attitudes, and that's what today's passage is largely about, our attitudes, because our attitudes is the key to Christian unity. How we think how we know, what we know and how we appropriate the truth that is in Jesus Christ can bring us Christian unity or can bring us disunity, depending on how we think. Someone has p- compared Christians to uh, two porcupines on a cold night. They want to huddle together, but as soon as they do, the pins stick each other and they spread apart. And then they come back together and then they go apart. And that is not only the experience of many Christians today and churches today, it's probably a good picture of how Christianity has been through the centuries from its very beginning, that Christians just can't seem to get along with one another. It caused someone to quip, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. So what is it about people? What is it about Christians? And how can we have unity amongst ourselves. We look at Christianity, the history of it, and we see it breaking into denominations continually throughout the centuries. I can't even keep track of what denomination comes from where. And now, even as I speak, the United Methodist denomination in the world is dividing in two between those who are conservative and those who are more liberal. I spoke at a United Methodist church last Sunday. They are very, very dedicated to missions, very conservative, uh, and they were, we were talking about this split that is happening right now in the United Methodist Church because the conservatives and the liberals cannot agree on certain things. I belong to a non-denominational church, and I have to constantly tell people we're not an anti-denominational church. We're just a non-denominational church. So, Don't assume that because we don't belong to a denomination that we are against denominations, because so many people might assume that. You have it at the denominational level, you have it at the church level. How many church splits have you ever heard of, Um, which can be very harmful and very uh, uh, grievous, and um, sometimes, you know, it's, it's... I don't, can't speak from experience, but I imagine many church splits are worse than a divorce when people who are, were friends and had so much in common uh, 
begin to argue about things and split. Sometimes it's a practical issue about how money should be spent. Sometimes it's a doctrinal issue. Um, but it's always a spiritual issue. When we have problems on the horizontal level with one another, it's always because of problems in the vertical realm in our relationship with God. And I think that's what we'll see here, why Paul's going to say what he says. So we see these differences in denominations and churches and then amongst individuals who just can't seem to agree, who might hold a grudge against one another um, or might be jealous or envious of one another. And just, or maybe they just don't have anything in common and focus on what's not in common instead of what is in common. In fact, we know that this is what happened in <clears throat> Philippians, which may have prompted Paul's whole discussion about Christian unity, because in chapter 4, in verse 2, he talks especially to Eudia and Synecdoche. He says, I implore Eudia and I implore Synecdoche to be of the same mind in the Lord. There's that emphasis on thinking in the mind. These two women were fighting about something, not agreeing, and it was probably affecting the whole health of the church. And he implores them to be of the same mind. Meanwhile, the world is watching us, churches and denominations and individuals, and concluding that I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't want to be a part of that if they're fighting and uh, they're not in harmony, living in harmony. Listen to what one uh, preacher said. He said, the public takes note of all these fights and divisions and things like that and not only derides us, but becomes hardened by all religion. When we try to persuade them, they see so many factions that they do not know which to join and think it is better not to join any of them. Thus, thousands grow in contempt of all religions by our divisions. You know, the preacher that said that lived 400 years ago. And I bet you were thinking I quoted somebody today. It is a constant problem of the church. Disunity when there should be unity. So our passage in chapter 2 starts out like this. I'm just going to read the passage. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, having being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own, his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Do you see there the emphasis on how we should think and what our mindset should be? He starts out by saying, therefore. <clears throat> I think the therefore is uh, a reference to Paul and, and his uh, previous reference of how he's suffering in prison, and yet he says in verse 27 that he wants them to fulfill his joy while he's there in prison. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or, or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. He wants them to be unified so 
he, when he visits them, he finds them unified, one mind, one spirit. And, and so now in chapter 2, he's going to explain what that takes, how we can find Christian unity. Therefore, he says, <clears throat> if... Now, the word if in this passage has the, has the force of since it is true. Since it is true. Not, he's not questioning whether they have any of these things because we know that all believers will have these things. So he says, since and if it is true, there is any consolation in Christ. Now, what does he mean? The word consolation is sometimes translated encouragement or exhortation. And it speaks of um, that which uh, the knowledge of Christ brings to our hearts and speaks to us and encourages us in our Christian lives. <clears throat> and so he says, if since you have this consolation of the Lord uh, informing you in your life and uh, in your life experience, um, that's one of the things that he names will bring us together. In the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, he prayed that all those who are in him would be one, would be unified. And so there is an encouragement from Christ, a consolation from him. And then he goes on, if any comfort of love, or since we have also the experience of God's comforting love. And from that word comfort, again, uh, it's sometimes translated encouragement, another incentive to be of one mind with others is the, the wonderful, comforting love of God that has been shown to us. And the word love here is that <clears throat> well-known word agape love, which stands for unconditional love that seeks the best for other people. And since we have received that kind of love, we should give that kind of love. We love others because he first loved us. 1 John 4 has that message. And the greater you know his love, the greater you'll be able to love other people. The love of God and its unconditional accepting nature pushes us away from self-centeredness and towards other people so that we can minister to them and meet their needs with the same kind of love God has for us. He mentions a third thing here. He says, if any fellowship of the Spirit. Do Christians have a common spirit? Of course they do. So since we have one spirit, we have that in common. And that's what the word koinonia means. It means to share something in common. We have this koinonia of the spirit, this sharing or fellowship of the spirit. Now, this is something that, of course, we can't see in each other. When I look at you, you can't I can't see the Holy Spirit in you, and you can't see the Holy Spirit in me. But we know from the Scripture, from many, many places in the Scripture, that we are indwelt with the Spirit, and we have that in common. And we have been baptized by that Spirit into the body of Christ. We have that common experience. You can't create unity in a church. Technically speaking, technically speaking, we already have it. We can only destroy it. So it's not a matter of working to build unity. The Holy Spirit in us has us in koinonia or fellowship, and it's up to us to destroy it. 
So technically speaking, we can't create unity. It's already been given to us. It's been done by the Holy Spirit and our sharing in Him. He goes on. If any affection and mercy. Affection, compassion is, some, is, is the word he uses. If, if we have compassion that we have experienced from Christ, and we have, it speaks of deep feelings. That's what compassion is to suffer with, literally is what the word means. Since we have this compassion or deep feeling for others, and mercy, he mentions, mercy is not getting what we deserve. It's when we don't get what we deserve, which we all have experienced from God. He didn't give us what we deserve. Grace is when he gives us what we don't deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. We deserve separation from God. We deserve eternal separation from, but, separation from God, but God in his mercy has saved us. And now we have experienced not only his compassion, because he had deep feelings for us, but also his mercy. He did not give us what we deserve. So therefore, what the Apostle Paul is saying, since you have experienced that compassion from God and that mercy towards God, be willing to extend the same to others. Have compassion with others. Suffer with them. Weep with those who weep, the scriptures say. Be willing to be alongside of them and share in their burdens and have mercy on them. People may not deserve to be treated so well, but give them what they don't deserve. Forgiveness. And don't give them what they deserve. So with these exhortations, the Apostle Paul is helping them to try to be of one mind, to think in like manner, so that he, they will fulfill his joy, that they would be like-minded. There's no question in the passage that they have experienced these things when he says, if or since you've experienced these things. In other words, it's as if he's saying, there's really no excuse for you now since you've experienced these things not to share that experience with others, not to let that overflow in your life towards others. Perhaps you have, can appreciate what he is saying from your own experience. You have experienced the comfort of Christ, the consolation of Christ, the encouragement from him. You've experienced the fellowship in the Spirit. You've experienced his deep feelings of affection and compassion. You've experienced and appreciate his mercy. And if we have, the implication is we have no choice but to, take, but to go where that leads us and listen to God and obey him when it comes to our relationships with other people. But the only way that it is possible to have that harmony in our relationships is first to have that harmony and appreciation in the vertical relationship with God. The horizontal relationships with one another depend on the vertical relationship with God. So there's a lot there that is said in verse 1 as Paul reminds them of all the experiences that they've had in Christ. That's the basis for how they should be motivated to act towards others. And then in verse 2, 
Again, he says something very similar as he did in verse 127 about fulfilling his joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. So being like-minded, and then he uses some phrases, I think, to explain that and, and build that thought. Having the same love. Having the same love. He wants them, first of all, to be thinking in the same direction with the same kind of mind. Uh, that's not just being polite to one another and friendly with one another, but, but having, when he talks about, um, in verse 2 of uh, uh, being like-minded, I think he's talking about striving with, in one purpose towards a common goal. Having the same priorities in life, not just being friendly with one another. You know, we can be friendly and get along on an elevator or on a bus or at a football game. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about being like-minded in what and why we're doing what we do. Do you know where you're going? Do you know why you're headed in that direction? We're not just playing church, but we're preparing people. We're we're populating the kingdom of God and preparing people for the kingdom of God. And if we're preparing disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples, we have a purpose and we should be like-minded about that purpose. And then he talks about uh, having this same love. We should be motivated by the mutual love that we experience from God that is supposed to overflow from us to those around us. Love God first, love your brother second, and this is agape love, as he mentioned before. And then being of one accord, of one mind. Again, here's the purpose. One accord has the idea of of, uh, a bond that brings us together in a common purpose, a common understanding, a common commitment. What does that look like? Well, It looks like people are not just friendly, but they're actually working towards a goal together. You know, they say uh, in, in, the, in the bunkhouse, soldiers often argue and quarrel with one another, but as soon as the enemy attacks, everybody's got the same purpose and they're united in purpose. They have to come together. The other night I saw, it was just yesterday, I think I saw on the news, uh, a tearful mother of a young boy who's been lost in the Dallas area. I think he has autism, so they're concerned about his ability to communicate, and he, they just can't find him. I don't know if they found him yet. They have. They have. Praise the Lord. Okay. He had. He drowned in his swimming pool. Sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear that. Well, I, the point was is that a tearful mother was on TV saying, would you please help us to find my son? Everybody, just come and join us. She was trying to focus them on a common purpose, a common goal. How often do we hear people making those kinds of appeals for missing persons? And Sorry to hear such a sad ending. 
So that's what the apostle is talking about, having that, that, uh, that, that common mindset that is heading in the same direction. And then when he comes to verse 3, he talks about the negative, how we should not be. Unity is being motivated by our experience with Christ, is what he said in verse 1. Unity is being like-minded, he says in verse 2. And now in verses 3 and 4, unity is achieved through mutual humility. Mutual humility. Now, humility is not, verse 3, when we do things out of selfish ambition or conceit. And that's why he says, don't let anything be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition, putting me first. Putting my interests above the interests of others. Trying to step on the backs of others so that I can get ahead or get higher in life or a better position, even in the church. That's not the kind of attitude that brings unity. Or conceit, he talks about. Conceit uh, being the idea of, uh, of deceit, of hiding things from others. Vain emptiness, it could be translated. So don't have a, a, a selfish motive. Don't have a deceitful, empty motive that puts my needs first, my ministry first, my work first. I also read in the news yesterday about a woman in big church up north, part of uh, the Metroplex, who was uh, discovered pilfering $1.3 million from the church coffers through the years. Putting her own interests above all the other people that that money could have helped, much less the fact that it was illegal to begin with what she did. But he says, instead of having these self-interests, have a lowliness of mind. Now, lowliness of mind... Um, the word humility usually represents that. Um, and this, this idea of a lowliness of mind or humility of mind actually was a negative word in the classical Greek language before the biblical period. It kind of had the idea of groveling. When you grovel, you know, in dirt like a beggar or something for, for something. And it did not have any positive connotations at all until the Bible takes it and uses it as a positive virtue and elevates the word. And so suddenly this word humility becomes a very good word. But even in today's world, it's much the same. Uh, humility is not an, a quality often looked up to or desired in people. We want to see people who are uh, boastful or arrogant or uh, self-assertive and uh, ha have a uh, false confidence um, at the expense of others. And so he says, have this lowliness of mind, and, and when you do, you'll esteem others better than himself. Hold others in higher regard than yourself. That's hard to do sometimes. Because uh, sometimes we just 
see the faults and the cracks in people, and it's hard to hold them up and think that their needs are more important than mine or their ego is more important than mine. But yet God is looking at them and he has created them and, and to them he is just as important as you are. Their work is just as important as your work. Their family just as important as your family. Their, their attitudes, their mental health, their emotional health is just as important as yours. So esteem others better than yourself, not just equal to yourself. That's always the amazing thing that jumps out to me is to esteem them better than myself, more important than myself. But that's what agape love does. It puts the interests of others way ahead of us, and we wouldn't know the full depth of God's agape love if he didn't himself do that exact same thing for us. By laying aside his, his glory and coming to earth and dying for us. He showed us the nature of that kind of love. He esteemed us more important than his own life. And we come to verse 4. And, and again, he says in that same line of thought, let each of you look not out for only his own interests, but for the interests of others. We don't go through life seeing what I can get out of it all for myself, but we're constantly tending to the needs of others. Yes, I have physical needs, I have illnesses, but what about those around me that have, are hurting physically? I have financial needs, but what about others around me who have financial needs? I have relational needs. What about others around me who are feeling lonely or need a friend? Put others first above your own interests is simply what he's saying. That's what love does. I remember one time a lady came up to me in our church and she said, you know, our church, uh, there just doesn't seem to be any love here. I'm not feeling any love here. And I don't know if I said this to her or, or just thought it to myself, but where does the Bible say, where does the Bible command us to be loved? Is there anywhere in the Bible that says we're commanded to be loved? The Bible says we're commanded to love. Maybe, I, this happened some time ago, maybe and I, it would have been a good thing to say to her, well, are you showing love to others? That's all, I don't, the Bible doesn't command you to be loved, it commands you to show love to others. Are you doing that? And then maybe you'll see love from others. Put the interests of others above yourself. Don't be like children always saying, my, 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 I want, I want. Your children ever come up to you and say, what do you want to watch on TV? What do you want for dinner? And the young children don't do that, do they? Don't be like those selfish little children. Learn to put the interests of others first. That's the true path to joy. Joy, J-O-Y, someone said, Jesus, others, and you. In that order is the formula for joy. Put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. When we are united in Christ, in our church body, 
I think would be the best application for what Paul is writing. It brings joy to you, to others, to uh, people outside of the church, to the world, to the body of Christ at, ho in, at whole, at large, everywhere. And that should be motivated by our experience with Jesus Christ and achieved through mutual humility. I like what one commentator, how he translated verse 1. He said, if then your, ex your experiences in Christ appeal to you with any force, if love exerts any persuasive power upon you, if your fellowship in the Spirit is a living reality, if you have any affectionate yearning of heart, any tender feelings of compassion, then listen and obey and fulfill Paul's joy. But I think he's interpreted or paraphrased that verse 1 well for all the motives that we should have to treat others above ourselves. There's so many things in the church we could argue about. And there's so many things I've seen people argue about in the church, and you have too. The kind of music we sing, the kind of worship style we practice. I remember in our churches, can we have drums? Some didn't want drums. Can we have a guitar? Some didn't want the guitar. Can we have an electric guitar? Do we sing hymns or do we sing choruses? Worship wars. That's a really oxymoronic idea, isn't it? Worship wars. But some disagreements can grow serious more about Bible views, you know. Uh, can we speak in tongues or not speak in tongues? It divides a lot of churches. Do we believe that the pastor should have most of the control of the church or should... Uh, there be elders in control of the church or should there be deacons in control of the church? And then there's always doctrinal issues. Pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, rapture can cause Christians to divide and split and argue. There's so many things we can argue about and yet what Paul is emphasizing is all the things that we have in common in Jesus Christ. I think it was Luther who said something like, we, we have unity in the essentials, but freedom in the non-essentials. Let's focus on the essentials. When we go overseas to train pastors, we have a mixed group all the time, mixed denominations, mixed beliefs. Usually there's, there's uh, hardline uh, denominations, then, and then there's independent churches, and we always have a, a, those who uh, believe in um, the charismatic gifts amongst us. And we teach them focusing on the essentials. And then suddenly the things that they thought were so important don't seem to be so important to us, so it's not so important to them. And eventually we address their issues. And because we've kind of convinced them that they're not frontline issues, uh, they become convinced oftentimes and see things from a more biblical perspective. There's so many things to deal with. Eternal security, do we have a difference with people when we train and teach them eternal security? Absolutely, I did that yesterday morning. But that's a big 
that's a big doctrine. That's an important doctrine. That's one, that's one hill that we have to fight and die on, I think, because it's related to the gospel itself. So I taught on eternal security yesterday, and I got a note from the pastor, and he said, we were discussing it before you came online, and uh, we, we were having disagreements, but after your teaching, he said, I can see it made a great difference, and people are agreeing now. If you just teach it from the scriptures. He wants to start a, the same class up north in Zambia, but that's a whole other story. Somebody say, well, I don't like to talk about doctrine. Doctrine divides. You know what? Doctrine doesn't divide. People divide. Doctrine doesn't divide. I've taught people of all different kinds of doctrine and been able to get along with them. Never hit one of them. And I've never been hit. Accept differences that others bring and, and if you can work with them in the minor things, accept those differences. If you can't work with them uh, in, in major things, then you can agree to disagree. But we're never going to see exactly the same, no two of us. You're always going to like chocolate, and I'm always going to like butter pecan, ice cream. You're always going to like uh, country music, and I'm always going to like rock music. I'm just speaking theoretically. I don't. <laughs> I'd lean towards country music, in fact. This, you're going to watch, want to watch documentaries. I'm going to want to watch sci-fi. Not really. I don't like sci-fi. I'm just... You're going to belong to one, Repub one political party. I'm going to belong to another political party. There are so many things in this world that can divide us. Why not focus on these things that the Apostle Paul has laid out for us that we have in Christ, his love, his compassion, his affection, his encouragement, this fellowship of this Holy Spirit. In a word, in a word, what he's saying to us is what we'll talk about the next time we go to Philippians in verse 5 is, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Think like him. Let his mind penetrate your mind and influence, infiltrate, permeate our thinking and then just like he put others first we'll be able to put others first so get the vertical right and the horizontal will work itself out in unity and harmony when there is disunity everybody loses you lose i lose the church loses and the world loses we have to come together because we have so much in common in Jesus Christ. There's a story of a child that was lost in Africa where the bush grows tall and somebody can easily get lost. And they notified uh, the people of the village and the people of the village scattered out and they were looking all over for the child. They couldn't find the child. And then they met back together and they said, what are we going to do this evening? Well, let's hold hands and walk across this area. So they all held hands and they found the child. What made the difference? They came together. Instead of doing their own things, they held hands and they found this child. We have so much to hold hands about. 
not any contrived false emotions or notions, but genuine, a genuine experience in Jesus Christ. You and I were all sinners. We were all saved, uh, uh, destined for eternal separation from God. We all understand Jesus Christ came and loved us with a great love and died for us and that he rose from the dead. And we have grasped that truth and he has promised us eternal life. We have received that promise for ourselves. That's our common experience. And then we go off in little different doctrinal directions and so forth. But that's our common experience that we have in him. When we believe in Jesus Christ as our savior, he gives us that eternal life that can never be taken away, which is ours forever. We have a common future and we'll live forever together in eternity. So let's get along here on earth. Well, Father, we thank you for the time together in your word. And, you know, unity is a difficult thing to achieve in this world, given that they, we still have the effects of sin in us. But we, we pray that we, you would help us to focus on all the things that you've given that we have in common, and that we might be able to love as you have loved and, uh, and live in humility as you have taught us, that Jesus Christ might be glorified, not just in the church, but uh, we, we might be a witness and him be glorified by our good works and our unity in the world. So this is our prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.